1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Book of Esther, one of the historical books in the Torah and the Old Testament, is known as a story of community, of discrimination, and of human ingenuity. It's core to the Jewish holiday of Purim, with singing, feasting, and other merriment. And it's unique as one of the few books in the Bible that doesn't mention God at all. But it's also useful as a historical document, as Lloyd Llewellyn Jones writes in his most recent book, Ancient Persia and the Book of Esther, A Court Culture in the Hebrew Bible. While not perhaps entirely accurate, the book refers to political divisions, court customs, and gender politics that align with what we know about ancient Persia. Lloyd LeBellon Jones holds the chair of Ancient History at Cardiff University and is the director of the Ancient Iran Program for the British Institute of Persian Studies. He has published widely on Ancient History. His other books include Persians, The Age of the Great Kings, Designs on the Past, How Hollywood Created the Ancient World, and Aphrodite's Tortoise, The Veiled Woman of Ancient Greece. Today, Lloyd and I talk about the Book of Esther, what it tells us about Persian history, and whether other parts of the Bible might act as good historical sources. So Lloyd, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, you know, for those of us who haven't maybe haven't read the Bible in a long time or maybe at all, um, what actually is the Book of Esther? Um, what happens in it, and what makes it unique in the kind of overall in in the overall work of the, the Torah and the Bible?
1: Well, the story of Esther is is really quite straightforward, and it works like a a little novel or novella, I suppose, within the Hebrew Bible. It's the story of a, a simple Jewish girl who ra- rises to uh, to fame and glory when she marries the king of Persia and somehow uh, manages to save her people from annihilation. That's it, uh, essentially, in in a nutshell. It's a very important book for Jewish identity, uh, because set within the story of Esther is the celebration of the first feast of Purim. Purim, uh, this celebration of, um, Hebrew, uh, um, the saving of the Hebrew race from genocide, uh, essentially. And you can imagine in the long and, and rather tragic history of the Jewish race, the Jewish people, um, who have encountered um, genocidal threats and have lived through genocidal experiences, of course, this book has a very, very important meaning to them. So it is commemorated every year in the very joyous festival of Purim. But oddly enough, for biblical scholars, it's a book which kind of sits outside of the norm because it does not have one mention of God in the whole thing. So there is no reference to the temple, to Jerusalem, to any ritual practices, any Jewish identities in that kind of sense. Uh, And so it stands out very uncomfortably, really, in in the canon of the Hebrew Bible. So much so, in fact, that when we discovered the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only book of the Bible which was conspicuous by its absence in that collection was the book of Esther. And that's probably because the Essenes, this very strict set of, of uh, Jews probably dismissed Esther as being too secular, really, for the inclusion into the holy scriptures as they interpreted it. So it's a, it's a very uh, controversial, confusing, and yet compelling and delightful book to work on.
0: So do you have a theory of what the book of Esther, I guess, quote, unquote, is? Um, you know, who <laughs> might have written it? Why was it written? Okay, kind of, what do we know? Kind of, why this book was written in the first place?
1: Well, we certainly don't have a single author here. Mm-hmm. I doubt that very much, which is the case for most biblical books, of course. Um, I believe that much of the Book of Esther was composed in the fourth century BCE, so that is during the Achaemenid period itself, when, of course, there were. Uh, Many thousands of Jews living in Persia and in Babylonia. They had been taken into these lands during the Jewish exile of the 6th century. And even though many thousands of people returned to Jerusalem when Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews to return, many, many thousands of families remained in uh, Persia and in Babylonia. And so this book of Esther seems to be written for the Jewish diaspora, who are very comfortably settled in Persia itself. It's a kind of a, a folktale, I think, more than anything else. We really see uh, hints of um, very popular kind of folktale devices in the story. Uh, to give you an example, um, the king of Persia. Uh, decides that he wants um, his harem to be restocked with beautiful women and so he sends out scouts across the land to bring him uh, beautiful girls from all over his empire and every night he, he he sleeps with one of them and should they pass the test of beauty or pleasure then they go into the harem all of that really smacks of the kind of folk tales we get picked up in the traditional alf leila wa leila or thousand and one nights which in itself, of course, has a Persian background, too. So there are many, many folk motifs going on here. Um, I think a lot of the folk motifs are actually being picked up from the ancient uh, Mesopotamian world. Uh, And we can see traces of that even in the names of the protagonists of the Book of Esther themselves. Esther, of course, is uh, a very thinly veiled version of Ishtar, who, of course, was the great goddess of love in Babylonia. Mm. uh, her cousin, Mordechai, who is the chief male protagonist in the book, is, of course, the god Marduk, uh, the great god of Babylon. So I think sitting behind the story of Esther is probably a folktale of some kind of rivalries that were going on, perhaps in the heavens, conspiracies and so forth, which, of course, has you know been transmitted and transformed over the centuries into a kind of new milieu. I do not think that Esther is in any way a historical book, although some people have argued for um, a historical um, setting to it. Um, It is set in the reign of Xerxes. um, And he is, of course, a a very famous Persian king, but he must have lived at least 150 years before um, the book of Esther was composed. So it's kind of like a a modern history for, for the Persians, but certainly still set in the past. And I think an opening the opening sentence of Esther actually sets the tone for the whole thing. It says almost like once upon a time, it almost opens with that kind of feeling. In the days of Xerxes, yes, that Xerxes who ruled the empire that stretched across 126 provinces. Can you get the feeling? You know, that there's very much a story here that yeah, once yeah. upon a time in a in a land long, you know, far, far away. You get that feeling. But what I love about Esther is that whoever was composing this, maybe a group of Jews together, they must have been Jews of some kind of social standing because their observations on court life, on etiquette, on royal protocol, is very, very realistic. It really matches what we know from indigenous Iranian sources And also indigenous, uh, also uh, Greek sources. Of course, the Greeks wrote a great deal about the Persian court as well. So they measure up very, very well. So it's full of kind of cultural indica, which give an authentic time and place, although the story itself, of course, is fantastical. So it's rather a, a bit of a sort of biblical bodice ripper if you like. You know, a great historical romance um, has all of that kind of, you know, the realia of, of, of life, and yet, of course, a fantastical tale that's spun around it. And I think that's the, that's the, the joy of Esther, in a way. It's kind of two genres um, marrying up together. And I, if my theory is right that this is a 4th century BC book, then... It's very much part of the zeitgeist that was going around in the 4th century because at this time we have the birth of the novella in the Greek world, for instance. Xenophon, in his Syropodeia, his Education of Cyrus, writes four little Persian novellas. We also find there's a Greek author called Ctesias who writes a thing called Persica or Persian things which are full of these little Persian stories. We also have the birth of the... Greek novel at this time as well. And in the Hebrew Bible, we have the um, manifestation of this novella form in the stories of King David and Solomon and the scandals of their courts as well. So there's something in the air in the fourth century, in the Greco-Persian Hebraic world, where these kind of stories are being plucked out and embroidered and elaborated on and turned into a new kind of genre. So we might call it um, tragic historiography or um, novella histories, that kind of thing.:
0: Well, let's get into some of this history then. I mean, so what do we what do we learn about the about the structure of the Persian Empire? Um, you know, through the Book of Esther. I mean, I mean, what do we what do we learn about um, its scope? Who lived in it? The status of the Jewish community within it. Um, what do we learn about the Persian Empire through, sure. through the Book of Esther? It's interesting. So the the whole
1: book opens with hyperbole. So we have 126 provinces. Now the Persian Empire was vast, absolutely vast, but it never had 126 provinces. At best, it had 33 provinces uh, stretching from the deserts of Libya in North Africa right the way down the Nile to Ethiopia across the whole of the Middle East uh, into Pakistan and northern India and then north uh, to the Crimea. Huge, huge territory for certain, but not um, the exaggerated figures that the biblical author gives. That's part of his once upon a time kind of theme of the whole book. However, within that when the Esther authors are putting together their story, they're full of really interesting little details about, for instance, communications, um, how communications are tra- uh, travel across this vast empire, um, the um, implementation of the king's law. Uh, the royal data, as it's called in Old Persian, um, the way in which um, uh, the, the king is the seat of government, but he rules through the use of governors or satrapies dotted across the whole of the empire, usually members of the imperial family, um, who, are, who serve him as kind of uh, a viceroys in different parts of the empire. All of that is inherent in the book of Esther so we actually get a very good sort of feeling for um, the process of governance in the Persian empire even though there is this sense of exaggeration uh, and a kind of fantastical feel to the whole thing too we also really find it in the importance which the the role of court ritual and etiquette Mm. Mm-hmm. And plays in the Book of Esther. Um, as many of your listeners will know, I mean, the, the climax really of the Book of Esther is where the Queen herself, against all commands and all etiquette, decides to go to the king and present herself in audience to him to ask a request and this is of course for the Jews uh, to be reprieved from their their fate um, and this is against all laws nobody is supposed to go to the king unless uh, he or she is called by name but Esther puts on her royal robes and her crown and she looks wonderful and as she strides out of uh, of the harem and into um, the the audience hall you know her, her cousin Mordechai says, well what will happen you know if, if the king is angry with you, And she famously says, if I perish, I perish. And then she boldly goes off. And, of course, the king, seeing her, is besotted by her, extends his scepter to her, pardons her, and then um, asks uh, what he can do for her. That's the kind of climatic moment. But to make that work so effectively for what was clearly uh, an informed audience at the time, they must have realised that it was against all protocol for anybody to approach the king in that informal way, uh, and that's what the, the 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 book is full of those kind of details. And also, um, the biblical authors on the whole are very sparse in giving descriptions of anything. I'm sure if you've ever read um, books of the Bible, you will have noticed that. You know they they don't they don't talk about individuals' beauty or they don't describe landscapes or anything. Mm. Esther is very different. Just the opening chapter of Esther alone shatters all the biblical norms because the authors give us a really wonderful description of the gardens of the Persian king in which Xerxes and his men are feasting. Um, They talk about um, the marble pillars, the porphyry uh, and um, shell inlays on the floor, um, the white linen drapes. Uh, the silver curtain poles, the blue and purple hangings—it's really quite a feast for the eye uh, in the way in which the the authors conjure up this this spectacle of Persian court life, which is really entirely absent from the rest of the Bible. And it shows that we you know they're, they're playing with genre here. That there, there are different things uh, in operation in Esther.
0: Um, you know, I wonder if I might ask about. Uh, I mean, you talk, you talk about like kind of all the all the detail um, yeah. in the book about people's beauty and stuff. Um, and the thing that popped in my head was, um, was it the detail about how I think it was a, before Esther actually kind of officially becomes queen, she's taken away for what like a year's worth of prep, <laughs> um, that's, that's and exactly and, right. and, yeah. and it goes into all the detail. Um, and I think, I, and so I thought I might segue from that into kind of talking about. Um, gender in the book and kind of you know, the relationship between men and women especially i guess in in the royal court um as as described and as communicated through the book ambassador
1: i think that the author has again a, a very good understanding and, and conveys uh, a very interesting picture of how the genders operate in the persian court um much debate, of course, has has been made about uh, the harem in Mm -hmm. ancient Persia, as it has been, you know, it has been a source of contention among scholars in other societies too. I am willing to accept absolutely that uh, the harem is not simply uh, a place of of pleasure, although pleasure was part of that world, but it was also a a political centre in itself. The harem, as I see it and as I describe it in the book was the the domestic space of the king uh, the royal family including the women wives and concubines as well as numerous uh, attendants to eunuchs of course but also uh, men who were part of the royal family who had royal blood within them uh, as well and really if you think of the Persian empire And this could go for the Mughal Empire or the Ottoman Empire, for that matter, or even for the Qing dynasty in China. These empires are family businesses, essentially. And the the domestic quarters of a palace, let's call it the harem or the inner court, whatever word you, you decide, This is where power is is really made or broken. It's through the relationships that can be fostered between uh, a king and his wives and his children, his offspring. Sex for any uh, absolute monarch was never simply there for pleasure because sex always had political consequences as well. Um, The birth of heirs. And in ancient Persia, as in many uh, uh, eastern Absolute courts, there was no primogeniture, which is really interesting. So, really, the prize of kingship was up for grabs through any of the sons who thought that they could claim it, or any of the sons who the king simply preferred. And this is where women's roles really come into play, because women, therefore, mothers of these sons, sisters of these sons, could actually have a huge influence on the ruling king. As to um their their beloved sons or or brothers uh, uh, could inherit the throne. So women play a a game of politics here and this this is what we see very, very clearly in Esther. Uh, Although the author doesn't really put her uh, head to head with other women, and we have sources from other um, periods uh, which, which talk about sort of harem clashes or harem rivalries, what the author of Esther does is to play Perfectly on the w- woman's influence on the king and how actually she can change policy um, through her proximity to the king. You know, back in the uh, 1930s, uh, Norbert Elias very influential uh, German scholar um, wrote his study, The Court Society, uh, and in which he looked at the court of Versailles uh, in France under Louis XIV. And he said really what Louis XIV created at Versailles was this kind of microcosm really of competition in which the great um, landed gentry, the great nobles of the realm were brought into the king's orbit and were kept occupied with what looks like trivial pursuits for us. You know, carrying um, the king's uh, footstool or um, uh, allowing uh, access to the king's body by giving him his shirt in the morning. We see exactly the same thing going on in the Achaemenid court as well, a very, very sophisticated court society where proximity to the king, actually to be in the orbit of the king was everything. A Persepolis, for instance, the great um, palace of Persepolis, we see images of courtiers, high ranking individuals, carrying parasols above the king's head or um, holding perfume bottles for the king to sniff at. All of this kind of thing allowed these great men and, of course, women into the orbit of, of the, the king's body and gave them access, most importantly, to the king's ear. And when you have access to the king's ear, you really have access to policy making itself. And I'm prepared to take those kind of stories very, very seriously. I don't think there's anything that we see in Esther that we can't find ready parallels for uh, in, for instance, um, the Kremlin under uh, Stalin, or for that matter, the Kremlin under Putin today. Proximity uh, to to, uh, to a powerful individual um, has results.
0: Um, you know, I wonder if I might ask for like a just just a brief aside on on the harem and kind of what makes it a a potentially controversial um historical concept i guess um i mean i I, I, yeah like what 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 makes the harem kind of kind of this 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 uh, such a controversial thing to talk about when it comes to persian history
1: well the very word itself for many people conjures up of course simply this this kind of bordello like Mm -hmm. Pleasure Palace, you know, we we think of um, scatter cushions and and girls with jewels in their navels. You know, it, it's the kind of stuff of a thousand and one nights and and, and a dozen Hollywood fantasies. Um, well, it's Princess all Princess
0: Leia and Star Wars, after,
1: right, so. all of this kind of thing, right? So it's Orientalist to its heart, and it's easy to get away with. it's, it's a very easy cliche if we want to do it that way. But actually, the harem has a a very important political role in uh, ancient and more modern societies. Um, The word itself is often a blockage. But I would say to people who are dissenting against using the word harem, get over it. Just define it for what it is, for what it really is. Harem comes from the Arabic haram, uh, which means uh, forbidden, taboo, out of bounds, whatever that may be. Fatima Minisi, a really fine um, Arab. Anthropologist and uh, feminist author said that, in fact, in the Arab world, we carry uh, a sense of harem with us. We don't need walls, we don't need dividing spaces. Everybody knows how to behave to one another. And in a way, that's what harem for me is all about. Now, of course, we could go looking for an ancient Persian word for harem, but I can tell you now we don't know what it was. We do have a modern Persian term. Andurani, which means the uh, the private space within a house, but that really is is unknown outside of you know any Persian speaker's vocabulary. Whereas harem does have a kind of a, um, a, a a power to it, and I would encourage scholars to keep using this word harem as long as your definition is clear. You know, get rid of the Hollywood cliches uh, and make it into a, a usable term again. It's it's a it's a quite clearly a very strong, potent location and concept in the world of ancient courts and medieval and early modern eastern courts as well, from North Africa through to, um, through to Japan, in fact. Uh, this kind of demarcation of space and mentality for royal families, uh, which of course include the women and children of the the royal household, is a very important political element. And to try to write out harem from these kind of histories, which some Western authors have tried to do, is simply a mistake. Um, Likewise, um, eunuchs this can be a very, very challenging idea for many Western historians, too. There are many eunuchs mentioned in the Book of Esther, uh, and they are um, they, they are to a penny, actually. And, and they're not commented on. They simply perform certain functions. They work within the harem, but they take messages outside the harem as a kind of castrate, as castrated men, essentially a third sex. They transcend all gender roles anyway. And, of course, we know historically that eunuchs were part of Mesopotamian life, of Persian life, Uh, again, in the Mughal Empire under the Qing and the Ming dynasties. They have formed very, very important roles in court societies, Ottoman uh, society, of course, as well. So some of my colleagues in in, uh, ancient Persian studies have tried to say that eunuchs are simply uh, there as a product of foreign imaginations. Greeks, for instance, uh, making up these stories uh, of, of, of these castrated men. Well, really, to write eunuchs out of 230 years of Achaemenid history just doesn't make sense when on either side eunuch history is part of a mainstream of 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 Eastern court cultures. It's so much easier simply to accept the fact that, yes, we have harems, yes, we have eunuchs. But they are not kind of orientalist spectacles. They have roles they have status they have things to say and things to do they are empowered uh, in their own ways let's um let's get rid, rid of this horrible ghost a specter of orientalism which sits over all we do re it and think actually if we really want to deal with these societies seriously from the inside we have to come to terms with what the west has found um disreputable, uncomfortable, uh, unacceptable.
0: Um, so kind of going, going through kind of, kind of your commentary on, on the book of Esther, um, you don't provide commentary on chapter nine, which uh, in the book of Esther is the chapter where, to be blunt, the Jews succeed and, and kill all of their enemies. <laughs> um, you know, what, what makes this chapter different from the others to the point where, where you do not provide commentary? On, on this part of the text,
1: yeah, I decided I wasn't going to engage with Chapter Nine because, um, in my estimation, it's not simply me. Lots of biblical scholars believe this as well. Chapter Nine is a later edition, a later edition to the to the text. Now, the the story itself, um, you know, the, up to Chapter Eight, we have this story of Esther, Mordecai, King Xerxes, and this wicked Haman who's trying to get the the Jews um, expelled from court and then killed. The, the plot, Haman's plot, is overturned by Esther. And the end of chapter eight has Haman, the wicked Haman, hanged on, uh, impaled on a spike and killed. And Esther has a party and Mordecai is uh, given great honours by the king and is celebrated. Esther actually finishes on an up. It's a happy ever after ending to the story but in fact that didn't quite suit the times when this story reached out into the Jewish diaspora and came into contact with the Jews of, uh, of Judea, of Jerusalem, by the 2nd and 1st century BCE. So some 250 years after its original creation, <clears> the <throat> story had spread out, it was becoming known, but there were a group of Jews who thought, actually, we can use this text, which is growing in popularity, to actually say something about our condition. So I believe that it was written probably in the 2nd century uh, BCE, the the ninth chapter, with all of its violence, with all of its fight for liberty of the Jews, uh, for the Jewish voice. And I think what it's echoing, actually, is the revolt of the, the Maccabees against the rule of the Greek Seleucids, Uh, which took place at that time. Antiochus IV, the the Greek Seleucid king of of Syria, also commanded the whole area, which is nowadays Israel-Palestine. And uh, he did despicable things to to the Jews there. Um, He uh, ordered pig sacrifices in the Jewish temple, of course, which was complete defilement. Um, He ordered images of the Greek gods to be put in the Jewish temple and so forth. So there was a kind of like guerrilla warfare in the first century against the Greeks, against these oppressors which I think gets worked into the Esther story to make that story one of a greater nobility. It's also the case that the greatest of the Hasmonean or Maccabean rulers at this point is not a man, but a woman. Her name was uh, Alexandra Salome. Uh, And I think that the story of Esther was almost... Um, presented to her, she becomes the new Esther for her people, who are doing this kind of freedom fight fighting against the um, the oppressive uh, Seleucid Greeks at the time. The Bible, you know, is is always open to new interpretation and to addition and we must remember that even though we've got stories in the bible you know uh, about the beginning of the world most of the bible has its formation in the persian period into the hellenistic period so what we now know as the bible is actually very much a product of the world of the author of esther it's about creating a sense of belonging, about creating a sense of what it means to be Jewish in a foreign world. That's what all the stories of Genesis and the Exodus are all about. Probably ancient myths and folk motifs and old, old oral stories <clears> have <throat> been transmitted and turned into this kind of national story, a propagandistic historical story which is needed uh, at this moment to give identity to the Jews. And I think that's one of the really incredible things um, about the Bible. In in the end of my book, I've got a, a short conclusion, and it's something I'd like to work on further in, in the future. Uh, I've called it the, the, hidden, the hidden Hebrew kings of the, or the hidden Persian kings, I beg your pardon, the hidden Persian kings of the Hebrew Bible, because I think that, when the history of israel was being finally written down in the form that we now understand as the bible in this persian period whenever the authors the jewish authors thought about what what is a king what must a king be like what would solomon have been like then what they draw on of course is Persian kingship. They draw on the image of the great king of of Persia, somebody like Xerxes or, or Cyrus the Great or Darius the Great. Um, so, you know, when we look in First Kings, which is certainly a book finally edited, put into place in the Persian period, we see the story of Solomon in all his glory and here, of course, we, we learn that Solomon has uh, 800 wives and 300 concubines. Well, of course, that's almost like a challenge to the king, the, the great king of Persia's harem. The great king of Persia allegedly had 360 concubines. Well, of course, Solomon, in all his glory, must have had even more than the, the great king of Persia. So the Persians become the kind of blueprint, really, for... Uh, monarchy uh, for success, uh, for empire building. David's empire is essentially a Persianate kind of empire that gets built there. So they provide a very interesting template for the uh, the Jews as they are constructing their own national narrative.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation about uh, ancient Persia and the Book of Esther. Achaemenid court culture in the Hebrew Bible. Um, Lloyd, I actually have two final questions for you. Um, you've actually kind of already answered them in your previous question, but 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 my two final questions for you are, uh, where can people find your work? Not not just this book, but all your work. And uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be?
1: Okay, so, uh, well, you can find my work on Amazon, on any good bookshops. You can also find I've done lots and lots of podcasts and so forth uh, for things like History Hit, uh, um, Biblical Time Machine. Uh, And, of course, you'll you'll find all of my publications uh, easily accessible on academiaedu.com. Um, my new book, which will be published in uh, in the spring of 2024, uh, moves away from Persia but certainly stays with with powerful females. It's called The Cleopatras: The Forgotten Queens of Egypt. So that looks at the seven Cleopatras uh, who bore that name. These remarkable, powerful women. And after that, I think um, I'm going to turn my attention to look at the Phoenicians, uh, another unsung but really, really fascinating uh, group of of people, seafarers and traders and colonists uh, who occupy the, the area that nowadays we call, of course, Lebanon.
0: So, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReview to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, we're on all of your podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Seema Alavi, author of Sovereigns of the Sea, Omani Ambition in the Age of Empire. But before then, Lloyd, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.